Good morning, everyone, and welcome uh, to today's webinar on CISI TV. We're looking here today, How Spies Think, Lessons from the World of Intelligence. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Alderman and Sheriff Professor Michael Minelli, and uh, absolutely privileged to be a chartered FCSI on. And I am delighted today to welcome Sir David Beaumont here. We are really privileged because today is the launch of David's book, uh, which is called How Spies Think, 10 Lessons from Intelligence. Sir David Omont was the first UK security and intelligence coordinator responsible to the prime minister for the professional health of the intelligence community, national counterterrorism strategy, and homeland security. He served for seven years on the Joint Intelligence Committee. He was permanent secretary of the Home Office from 1997 to 2000, and before that, director of GCHQ. Since leaving GCHQ, he has proven to be an accomplished and insightful contributor to many discussions, and I've had the privilege of meeting him on a number of occasions, such as his rich contributions to Gresham College and the Chartered Institute for Security and Investment Events. So it really is here. And we're here as the first people on the exact day of your launch, the 29th of October at 9 a.m. sharp. Now, David, um, as ever, it'd be really nice if you could show the audience the book itself. Well, this is what the uh, you might think spies think. But <laughs> Penguin have provided a cover, which if you put it across, will show you how spies really think. Oh, so there I, you are. I had a publisher as good as yours. <laughs> <laughs> now, David is going to address us uh, for about uh, 20 minutes or so on the book itself. I will be coming back and joining him uh, for a discussion of uh, a number of points that have been mailed in earlier. But please uh, do send any questions or comments through the Zoom chat facility. And I will try in the time available to weave them into the conversation. And we will be ending just before 10 o'clock. So, Sir David, if I may, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Michael. Thanks for the introduction. And I'm delighted to be back talking to a CISI audience. Okay, let me cut to the chase. What do you need to know to take sound decisions? We all have personal decisions to take. It might be where to live or what job to apply for, even whether to wear a mask in the street this morning, a decision that could have welfare consequences for other people. And when we make these decisions, we have to bring together in our own head two different kinds of thinking. On the one hand, rational, dispassionate analysis of the situation we're in, and on the other, our emotionally driven ambitions for what we want to achieve by our choice or what outcomes we fear and wish to avoid. And both kinds of thought, the dispassionate and the passionate, the is and the values driven ought, need to be understood and brought together if we're going to make sound decisions. Bringing these types of thinking together has always been hard, but the proposition in the book is it is getting harder in the internet age. The rational is being squeezed out by the emotional. What we find online cannot be assumed to be objective evidence. It's emotionally manipulative, sometimes it's contradictory, and sadly, sometimes it's deliberately false and from more sources than ever. So our rational analysis tends to get distorted and it can leach across to actually affect what we think we want to secure from the decision itself. And that's as true about preparing to make choices in the polling booth as it would be choices made on an online dating site. I started thinking about this after the Brexit referendum and the presidential election, the US presidential election in 2016, and found myself getting increasingly cross at how the issues were being conveyed through social media. So you can see the book as a, a call to arms in favor of rational analysis to support decision-making and to oppose the rising tide of half-truths and emotional distortions that are trying to persuade us online of what we ought to think and, and want. Not to mention, as I say, the downright falsehoods and deceptions, and they're not all coming from Russia, which have the tendency of widening divisions in society and increasingly setting us 
at each other's throats. Now, I'm not naive about this. The public has always aimed off in political debate for political swagger and exaggeration of the benefits of a policy. And you can't have democratic politics without personal ambitions and rivalries. But we shouldn't have to suffer those who blur or even deny the very nature of a fact. And we're now in a world where respecting the truth no longer seems as important as creating the desired emotional impact. What the Rand Corporation in the US has called the spread of truth decay. I would like it to be true becomes with constant social media repetition. Well, it might be true. And that slides too easily into, well, it's as good as true. And my book was more or less finished by the time COVID-19 hit us. But the question I pose in the book, what do we need to know to take solid evidence-based decisions has come back with a vengeance in the arguments between the professionals and the policymakers over how to manage the pandemic. Michael, as you mentioned, I spent seven years as a member of the Joint Intelligence Committee and I watched the analysts struggling with incomplete information, sometimes uh, deceptive information, trying to work out, provide their knowledge of the world. Now, the first lesson in intelligence is that our knowledge of the world is always fragmentary, it's incomplete, and it is sometimes wrong. And that's true of information we use for any kind of decision. But when I watched the intelligence analysts, you can see how they have methods for unpicking problems, uh, uh, sifting the evidence, weighing it, bringing it together. Uh, and they have a self-knowledge of how their own prejudices can affect their judgments. So the proposition in the book, we can learn from how they go about their uh, rational analysis. It's quite interesting because in, when you look at national security, government takes enormous care to separate these kinds of thinking, the dispassionate and the committed. You want the most impartial professional judgments possible. That's what the Joint Intelligence Committee is for. That's what the SAGE Scientific Committee is for to guide those with the democratic mandate who have to take the hard decisions. Uh, of course, we philosophically, all we can know comes from our personal sensory inputs. There's no other way of getting information into our heads. And analysts can't fully escape their unconscious emotional framing of issues, precisely because they are unconscious. But by understanding how you can fall into error, you follow the physician's Delphic command, first know yourself, you can reach a high standard of impartiality and truth telling. And then of course, it's up to those with the democratic mandate, the politicians to take the final decisions. And we just hope that they avoid the magical thinking that makes the wish father to the thought, as Shakespeare put it, in Henry IV, part two. Now, I suspect this audience already knows how online content works and why it is that it hits us at an emotional, not a rational level. It's the toxic combination of the inherent characteristics of the business model of the internet, combined with our very human psychological vulnerability. Algorithm-driven targeted advertising is what pays for the whole thing. Uh, our own personal digital data, including our online searches and surfing and viewing and liking and spending, market stuff at us. Well, that's great. But the more outrageous the material, the more clicks it attracts and the less it costs the originator. And it's now used, of course, to target political messages very precisely at us with perhaps 100 or more different dimensions, characteristics, which put us in a particular bracket that for a particular purpose, the uh, political message uh, is, is aimed. So without realizing it, we are in fact being manipulated within our 
filter bubbles. And the internet, therefore, I think, is shaping our reality. It's not just a reflection of it. And that's why, of course, autocratic states like Russia and China can use their censored internets to control their population. So back to the question, what do we need to know to take solid evidence-based decisions? So let me start with the rational part of the analysis. I think there are four routes to using intelligence to reduce ignorance. And together they form what I call the C's model of intelligence. That's S-E-E-S. -E -E These things have to have acronyms or nobody will remember them. So it's C's, four outputs for the decision maker, situational awareness, explanation, estimation, and strategic notice. And the first four chapters of the book look at each of these in turn. Situational awareness is about what is happening on the ground or in cyberspace, answering the sort of factual questions that start with what, when, and where. Reliable, consistent situational awareness obviously is what you have to start with before you plunge into policy arguments over what to do. But as I say, the first of my 10 lessons in intelligence is that our knowledge of the world is always fragmentary, incomplete, and is sometimes wrong. The British intelligence community puts a huge effort into building systems to provide better situational awareness, and perhaps we can talk about those in, in question time, designed to identify the data points that are necessary to prevent harm terrorist identities, their movements, their finances, purchasing, and so on. And if you take COVID-19, we are presented daily with figures for daily cases. But when you start to poke around, you, of course, the figures we get shown are those by date when the test result is recorded, not the date when the sample was taken, which is actually what matters. Uh, you get hospital admission numbers, but not for the whole of the country. It, they don't include Scotland. Uh, the deaths of those tested positive in the last 28 days is from all causes, but we don't get shown those alongside the important figures of excess deaths compared with pre-COVID levels. And those trying to trace contacts have no access to hotspot data because Google and Amazon refused on their own view of data privacy to let their app record where you were when you were near uh, a reported COVID sufferer. So there's still, even there, there are issues around situational awareness. One of the examples I use in the book is that of the Falklands crisis in 1982. Margaret Thatcher would have woken on the 2nd of April, 1982, to discover a fait accompli, Argentine forces in control of the Falklands and her own head on the political block. Had it not been for GCHQ intercepts earlier in the week, revealing that an Argentine uh, invasion force had set sail for Port Stanley. And she was able to show resolve on that uh, Saturday after the invasion, standing up in the house and saying, there is uh, a task force being assembled as I speak, uh, and we will send it to the South Atlantic. And that resolution saved her government and I suspect her position as prime minister. I describe in the book, just to interrupt for a moment, the moment when in her room in the House of Commons, I showed her those three key GCHQ intercepts and pointed out that by the end of the week, she would have lost the Falklands. And I won't forget telephoning the duty commander in the Ministry of Defense later from her room to pass on the historic order, ready the fleet for sea. But the second lesson in intelligence is that facts need explaining. They're capable of multiple interpretations. This is how defense lawyers make a living. Was <laughs> fact, the accused fingerprints were on the bottle that was thrown at the police. Was that because he threw it and the fragments were found and his fingerprints were there? Or was it just his old wine bottle the mob spotted as they passed the recycling bin outside his house? Same fact, two alternative explanations. 
And therefore, explanation, the second E in C's, is the second output of intelligence analysis, answering questions about how and why. For example, why do we now think it was Russia that was responsible for the NotPetya cyber attack? And how did it end up costing global business over $10 billion and nearly destroying the world's largest shipping company? So providing a sound evidence-based explanation involves testing alternative hypotheses against the data. You look for the explanation with the least evidence against it, not necessarily the one that has stacked up most evidence in its favor, because if you look hard enough, you can always find some evidence that appears to support an argument. And that was a trap we fell into in the run-up to the invasion of Iraq. And that is also how conspiracy theories thrive. But it only takes one solid piece of contrary evidence to knock down one of your, your potential explanations. Explanation is hard. You need access to background knowledge, possibly foreign language skills, history, geography, anthropology, psychology, current affairs. And the explanation often boils down to assessing the motivation behind some observed act. Why does Russia use the illegal nerve agent Novichok as a murder weapon, given that its use points straight back to the Kremlin? One of the issues here uh, in trying to work out your explanation is that your emotional state of mind affects how you infer meaning. Imagine, Michael, you're late at night, you're sitting in an empty carriage on the last train from the airport and a big, burly, unkempt man comes into the carriage, sits behind you and starts talking aggressively to himself, apparently threatening trouble. Probably you will have a quick look to see how far is it to the door to the next carriage and you might, where is the alarm? Then you notice the tiny earphone he's wearing and you relax. Your mental mapping has flipped over. You have a non-threatening explanation a very cross and tired man off a long flight making a mobile call to the car hire company that failed to pick him up. And what made you apprehensive might, was how you added emotional color to your mental map, in this case, red for danger. And that framing was almost certainly beyond conscious thought. And it might have been triggered by some previous situation, or perhaps you just watched a scary movie on your flight, such as Halloween. Now, if you have understood that, then you, know, you are more likely to reach sound evidence-based explanations. And then you can move on to estimation, which is the, the second E in C's. Uh, estimate is a word analysts prefer to, pre to predict. They don't like prediction sounds feels like crystal balls and no one has a crystal ball. But you can estimate how events may unfold on different assumptions. And the third lesson in intelligence is that to do that, to have an estimate of how events might unfold, you don't just need a lot of data. You need a sound explanatory model of how it works. Otherwise, you fall into what is known as the inductive fallacy. So estimates and modeling are the third component of C's, answering those questions about what's likely to happen next if we do or do not adopt a particular policy or act in a particular way. And you can see this day by day today in the interactions between the sage scientists on COVID-19, trying different assumptions, modeling potential outcomes. Finally, the final S in C's stands for strategic notice, because whilst you're very busy with the first, this S-E-E, -E, uh, whilst you're very busy analyzing the situation, something will creep up behind you and hit you on the back of the head you weren't expecting. So strategic notice is keeping a wary eye out for possible future challenges that might come and hit you particularly when you're preoccupied with the current um, crisis. So it's questions like, how could we best prepare for whatever might appear next? Or could we preempt this risk so that it never comes to test us? 
My favorite example here is Francis Drake singeing the beard of the King of Spain, burning the boats in Cadiz Harbor. Those were the boats for the invasion of England. So you preempted that particular attempt pre-Armada, that particular attempt, uh, if you have the information. Uh, so the fourth lesson in intelligence is that if you have this strategic notice and you use it wisely, you do not have to be so surprised by surprise itself. Uh, you can't predict when a volcano explodes, but as we know from Iceland, when they do, they throw ash into the air. So what a good idea it would be to find out what size of ash particle a modern jetliner can fly through safely. That wasn't done when the Icelandic volcano exploded in 2010 and the result was a billion pounds worth of damage uh, cost and a whole week of dislocation for global aviation. So strategic notice used properly is really important. And those, when governments fail to act appropriately or in good time, it's usually because a problem has arisen at one of those four stages or possibly more than one of them. I won't detain you all uh, with going through the rest of the book. You, why don't you buy it and read it? But the first part of the book is about that model. It's about how do I rationally analyze? The second part of the book is how can I fall into error? What are the things that will go wrong? Group thinks, mirror imaging, confirmation biases, and all of that. Uh, the fifth lesson in intelligence is it's our own demons that are most likely to mislead us. But we also have to watch out for obsessive states of mind. And we all know people who have obsessive states of mind. And we need to understand the enduring appeal of conspiracy theories. The uh, example in the book uh, is James Jesus Angleton, who was the chief of the CIA's counterintelligence. And he had followers in the UK like Peter Wright uh, from MI5, author of the book Spycatcher. And they were convinced themselves that Harold Wilson was a Soviet agent and therefore the head of MI5 and the deputy head of MI5 must also be Soviet agents because otherwise that they must have covered it up. And this led them to uh, the fantasy that the KGB had actually murdered Labour Party leader Hugh Gateskill to allow Wilson to become Prime Minister. And then they had a circular, completely circular logic, which only went to show that Wilson must have been a Soviet agent all along. This was all nonsense on stilts, but they sincerely believed it and they wrecked a lot of people's careers in the process. So there's also the risk of deliberate deception, and I cover that in the book, uh, manipulation and deception. And then the final part of the book is really looking at how can you use this way of thinking in negotiation? Uh, if you have a difficult negotiation, how do you bring to bear that kind of rational analysis, both of your position, but also of the negotiating partner on the other side of the table to arrive uh, at a mutually agreeable win-win rather than a win-lose or lose-win. Uh, I look uh, at long-term partnerships, which is a related. How do you go about building the sort of partnership that the United Kingdom has with the United States, for example, in intelligence? So I look at that partnership. And then finally, uh, uh, where I started, the threats from subversion and sedition are now digital. They're online. So what do we do as a nation? How do we start to protect ourselves from the inherent vulnerability we have to interference in our democratic process and uh, uh, disruption of our domestic life by setting one group against another? To conclude, uh, Buddhists teach that there are three poisons that cripple the mind, anger, attachment, and ignorance. Emotions like anger can blind us to what is true and what is false. Attachment to old ideas with which we feel comfortable 
may falsely reassure us that the world is predictable and blind us to threatening developments. And that's what causes us to be taken by surprise. But it's ignorance that is the most damaging mental poison. And the purpose of rational analysis, which I describe in the book and in the C's model, is to reduce such ignorance, thereby enabling us to safeguard our future. I'll stop there, Michael. David, that's a wonderful exposition of the book. And in fact, what I, what I liked uh, was section three, where you talk about intelligent use of intelligence. In some ways, section three uh, sums up the book and, and your comments here. And I, I think it's important the audience goes away remembering the C's, S-E-E-S, uh, -E situational awareness, explanation, estimation, and strategic notice. Uh, so that was fantastic. I also noticed you avoided saying the name of the Icelandic volcano, or at least I always try and avoid saying it. Uh, so, so good on you there. Um, got a few questions actually coming I, in. I, 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 Jokel. Oh, you show off you. <laughs> Very good. Uh, questions coming in, please, folks, uh, do feature questions through to, to us here on the panel. Um, really, but to kick things off, uh, David, uh, this book, at least, and our audience today is largely business people. Yeah. And business people have always looked for inspiration to a variety of areas. Uh, they seem to have a low esteem complex. They look at military, sports, art, culture, magic. I've even seen lately articles where firms are taking their staff and their managers on stand-up comedy courses because they think it will help them. Uh, in a sense, you're saying espionage is another area that would help business people. What's I think I'd, I'd interrupt you there and say intelligence analysis. This is not a book teaching you to spy, and it's certainly not a book encouraging commercial espionage, quite the reverse. But that thought process that you know, a professional analyst goes through, you know, that's what you need in your strategy department. That's what you need on the board when you're thinking of, do we know what we need to know? And have we understood that our instincts to plunge into this new market because we are, we're the winners. Hang on a minute. Why do we think that? Th those are kind of the sort of thought process which I think would help any business. Hmm. Now, I, th I think that that's the important bit. A lot of this is about self-doubt, isn't it? It's encouraging an appropriate level of self-doubt. Yeah. You... You have you need both. You you have to have the commitment, the emotional commitment, uh, the ambition to do things, but it, to avoid magical thinking, which is stating the ambitions, you know, putting them in the annual report, or <laughs> delivering the, the rousing speech from the bonnet of the jeep, but without actually having done the hard work to know you can connect that to people on the ground and resources that will actually make it happen. And that's one of the current failings uh, in our politics is you get the statements, but then the results don't appear. And that's because that hard work of actually, this is what it is, will take, uh, this is how long it will take, these are the resources and the people that we need, the skilled people are actually available. And if you haven't had that conversation, the chances are you won't get the result you're looking for. It sounds desperately obvious. Well, it is obvious, but it is, once you start thinking this way and then you start uh, listening to some of the political statements that are thrown at us, you begin to realize, yep, that's aspirational. It's great to be aspirational, but is it magical thinking? Um, just, to, I mean, the book is entitled How Spies Think. And you pointed out uh, the importance of Drake's preemptive strike on Cadiz, which I'd agree with. But could you talk a little bit about the translation from thinking to acting? Uh, so there seem to be two bits. You sort of wait till events force you, but Drake certainly didn't. He he picked a moment to act. And uh, what what is your what is your thought on that transition? The really two. Two kinds of situation. One is, is where thing, something is likely to come and hit you very quickly. In those circumstances, almost any decision is better than no decision. No decision is a decision. Uh, but, uh, and this is something intelligence analysts know very well, 
you get displacement activity from the decision maker when you face them with, look, you really are going to have to act now. And the temptation is then to say, well, let's have some more analysis, or if we wait you know, a week or two, the situation will be clearer, by which time you may have lost the, the magic moment to make the deal or indeed to save, save the nation. But then you've also got the longer term strategic notice. Now you can't preempt everything. We've got a limited amount of money to, uh, as, as a nation to spend on things, but it may be just a little bit of research. So take quantum computing. When that arrives at scale, it will transform uh, a lot of uh, uh, the world's activity and it may render some of our financial systems transparent because the ciphers that are used, public key encryption, will be uh, 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 open to exploitation by a at scale uh, a quantum computer. So wouldn't it be a good idea to start devoting some serious resources to quantum resistant algorithms? I'm very glad to say that in the UK that is happening. And as far as I can see, without very much success so far, but then we haven't got the quantum computer scale arriving either. But by getting ahead of the game, coming back to your question, get ahead of the game, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean spending a huge amount of money but you will, we will be better prepared. If you take COVID-19, uh, a pandemic, a mutated flu virus, was the top right-hand corner of the risk matrix. Uh, ever since I started uh, government risk registers, you know, back in the, back in the day after 9-11, yet we were still found ourselves short of PPE and without plans to rapidly expand track and trace in an efficient way. And that poses the question, we had the strategic notice. Uh, we couldn't have predicted the characteristics of COVID-19, the exact characteristics of the disease because it's a brand new disease. But there are things that we perhaps could have prepared ourselves better. So that's just an example, I may be unfair. No doubt there'll be a public inquiry at some point and, and that will tell us. I, I think, uh, no, it's, a, it's an excellent point uh, about our ability to blind ourselves. Uh, I found uh, during this lockdown, one of the interesting things was watching a nine-year-old nine Hollywood film that laid it out almost completely, the lines, the two-meter distancing, the, the whole thing. And, and yet we were unprepared. Uh, and we were even unprepared in the sense that uh, we knew on the 1st of January, the 31st of December, Taiwan took action, New Zealand, et cetera. So it's a... It's there, but um, let's pick another area because I, I would like to come back to COVID maybe towards the end. Um, but David Gorman was wondering if you could apply your fees model. Could you expand on the nature of cyber threats as you see them? Yeah, um, the first thing is situational awareness. Do we really know what is going on in cyberspace? And if you're running a company, do you know what is happening on your networks? Now, the larger companies have afforded themselves 24-7 monitoring centers and have a pretty good idea of who is accessing what information. But many companies haven't yet done that. And that leaves them extremely vulnerable. So we know that uh, no barrier defense will keep out the bad guys if they're really determined to get in. So you have to assume they're in. So has the company organized itself on a sort of trustless basis so that uh, the information that really needs protecting is being protected. And at this point, you have to turn from the situation awareness, start to think about the explanations. You know, what are the opponents out for? Why are they acting in the way they do? Try and explain what's happening. And then you can start to model what would happen if they got through and they got hold of the IP or they exposed our customer database, which perhaps we didn't fully anonymize and therefore customer details can be sold on the black market on the, uh, the, the, the deep web. So uh, that's the point at which you start to model and then perhaps the thought starts to occur to you, let's have a company-wide exercise. 
let's actually assume this has happened and prepare ourselves. Uh, or it might be insurance. Uh, the, you know uh, that the insurance market and cyber is very immature and not all the risk can be covered. Uh, and probably we need to end up with a pool ray-like uh, structure where government backs the cyber market. But it's that kind of thinking that drives you and me, no doubt, to insure our houses. Uh, it's, it's unlikely, but we have got strategic notice from seeing other people's houses going up in smoke that actually we can act and insure against that manage that particular risk. So it's kind of going through these processes, but the big mistake is to jump from uh, situational awareness, from data, straight into, well, let's, mo into modeling. Let's extrapolate. And you see this happening in business markets. You know, last year we had a 5% growth, uh, but in the first quarter of this year, we had a 10% growth, and then you just start drawing straight lines, and you haven't really explained why that growth took place, and it may, in fact, evaporate. But then, of course, you get hit on the back of the head by COVID-19, but the, you get the point that you have to be able to explain what is going on in the marketplace or the, the foreign country or whatever it is you're, you're examining. Well, far too many business leaders I know can explain that very easily. The first, growth is genius, my genius. The second to downturn is just bad luck. Uh, so, <laughs> fairly obvious, <laughs> but no, absolutely correct. Uh, David, I I'm interested that you mentioned uh, cyber insurance, as you're aware, I'm uh, for, for 10 years been promoting the concept that we do, in fact, have a, effectively a cyber re as well as a pool re. Uh, but the pandemic has led to a lot of people saying, Shouldn't there be a national risk register that has things out there on it, uh, all sorts of, of things that we've got, uh, what you might call existential threats, and correspondingly have an insurance vehicle? And there have been things at the Lloyd's Market called resilience re or recovery. Uh, there's another private sector uh, one called totus re. And the idea is that we use insurance uh, with these threats to help everybody. Uh, create more resilience in advance of them occurring. Any thoughts on, on, on these proposals? Yeah, I mean, we do have national a national risk register. It's on the web. If you Google Cabinet Office risk register, it will probably pop up. Uh, it appears both as lists, which are not terribly useful, because as lists, there's an awful lot of stuff on them, because a lot, an awful lot of bad things can happen. But then you move, the, the government also publishes risk matrices. So likelihood and vulnerability or impact. Uh, and from that, you can begin to get a sense of priority. So I say a pandemic was in the top right-hand corner of the likelihood impact mate, uh, diagram matrix, uh, way above terrorism. And that's right, COVID has killed more of our fellow citizens and done more damage to our economy than any cyber attack could have done or any terrorist attack could have done. So it deserved that place. Um, one of the techniques which I've uh, always believed in is if you're on a board uh, or a, a, a commercial group and you're trying to make sense of your risk register is to divide the discussion into three parts. And the first part of the discussion is, what are the things we can do nothing about? Nothing to stop. You know, the exchange rate collapses, uh, COVID arrives. But what contingency plans can we make against those? We can't affect the likelihood, but we can plan and take insurance and so on. The second uh, category are those things which are inherent in the nature of the business. So if you're in retail, then there will be shrinkage of the stock. <laughs> so what are the, conf or indeed, if you're in finance, they're going to be fraud. Another form of shrinkage of the stock. <laughs> yes. So uh, what are the control mechanisms 
what are the internal audit mechanisms, all of that stuff. But then the third group is much the most interesting, which is what are the self-inflicted risks? Because we decided we're going into a foreign market that we hadn't operated in before, uh, or God help us, we've decided we're going to invest in a completely new IT system for the whole company. Uh, or, you know, a new accounting system. I won't mention any names, I don't want to offend anyone, but we are going to move over to an entirely different accounting system. You know that's risky. You know if it goes wrong, you know, you may well crash the company. So then the sort of questions you ask are, who did we put in charge of that? Was it the person who was there in the first place? Or did we go out and recruit the best person that we could find, even at some cost, because we cannot afford that to fail? Uh, so you get different kinds of questioning, but it's all about trying to firstly get the strategic notice, get the risk register, and then try and manage. Uh, and you know the dynamics of, as I say, explanation uh, will be different in these different kinds of categories. Um, I'd like to turn to a couple of other questions here. Um, one of the things that business people, I, I think, do is they look at the fake news arguments and they say, wow, it's terrible in society, etc. But it's really got very little to do with business. Um, this is about people making votes or whether or not where they stand on issues to do with uh, sexual choice. It's, uh, this is no, nothing really to do with us because we are business people and, and we are rational, which is itself, uh, one might argue, is a trap. Uh, aligned with this, uh, we are seeing a tremendous amount of work online about propaganda and misinformation. The US State Department has actually issued a call for tenders for private sector people to provide uh, anti-propaganda, anti-misinformation uh, uh, systems. So is this world of, of intelligence moving via globalization and automation almost entirely online? And what should business people be doing? Is this going to be kind of spy, counter-spy warfare online with bots and we all have to invest in our weaponry to defend and protect ourselves? Well, the first thing is we have to protect what we hold dear. So I still find it surprising that not every company has really identified what it is it can't afford to lose. Uh, one of the simplest ways in which you can get into trouble is to be attacked by ransomware. And there's an enormous amount of this around. Mm. And it only takes one casual slip by an employee clicking on the wrong link or whatever. And then you find the whole company's system is locked down. Uh, now, if the if you can't afford that to happen because it disconnects you from your customers and you haven't afforded the backups and so on, then you better not fall victim. How are you going to prevent that? Uh, and that will take you down various routes of uh, uh, staff training, uh, identifying the things that really you are going to need contact with, such as your customer and supplier databases and so on and you back all that up and you make sure you can still operate uh, for some of course the it's what gets locked down is the actual machinery so if you're in a hospital and the x-ray machines don't work because the the ransomware has actually got at the uh, controlling software then you're in deep deep trouble and the number of such attacks in the United States for money, this is criminal activity, it's nothing to do with aggressive states. Um, the number of uh, such attacks in the US is very considerable. So again, it takes you down a sort of thought process of trying to work out what is the most important uh, information which you have. And we all know that in, for most sectors now, particularly the finance sector, it's information that's the value. And if that gets screwed up. Now, what I would like to point out is if in strategic notice terms, we can already see the capacity to manipulate information for advantage or our disadvantage. Uh, 
So can you trust the database? Are you going to be monumentally screwed up or indeed face some pretty big legal hazards because the data you thought was reliable and on which you based your, whether it's food manufacturing or whether it's uh, relationships with customers, somebody got in there and they screwed it up. They played with it. Now, that's very unlikely to happen to most if you're in a key sector, however, it's one of those risks. Now, this, that's just part of the problem. Then you have things like, which I discuss in the book, like deep fakes, so that you can have uh, people dissing the product, uh, uh, appearing, well-known people appealing, appearing you know, perfectly convincingly video that a they are saying things that, uh, which would be very unlikely that they would ever say, but they're saying them and you see it and you believe it and it gets retweeted. And before you know where you are, you have a, an established fact, if you like. Uh, and it's very difficult to unwind when these stories get around, these memes get around, um, they really hurt. Uh, and unwinding them is very difficult. I, I, I could go on for hours, Michael. I mean, this is such an interesting area. It is. In fact, you know, one of the things I, I remarked uh, very early on in the crisis is if you look at artificial intelligence, well, I, I prefer machine learning, but if you look at machine yeah, learning, the algorithms are fairly stable. Uh, we've, uh, we, we, we've seen that over time. The second thing, you know, we've seen is the processing power has increased and all that. That's great. But the biggest thing has been data, data, data. That's what makes an area revive. And as we've all moved online for the first time, we're getting millions and millions of recorded hours in a restricted square of people. And I expect to see kind of the deep fake element when somebody joins a meeting like this and is completely believable and is completely a bot. Uh, and that could be coming much more rapidly than we think simply because of the data explosion in the last seven months. And business uh, can't be in a, a, a little bubble of its own because you know you have to sell to real people uh, and do business with real people you have real suppliers and if there is major disturbance in the ecosystem uh, or to take another example you have one part of the country the throats of another part of the country and that's mm -hmm. been exacerbated by fake news being injected into the system we all suffer so there are big external externalities as the economists would say uh, uh, from internet disruption. As I've said to CISI before in a talk, we have sold our soul to the internet. We are completely dependent on this for our social and economic uh, future. Where would we be in COVID terms if we couldn't communicate with each other online? So we are dependent. And uh, unfortunately, it's a system that has a dark side and we've got to learn to manage that, which is really the theme of the book. Yeah, so true. I, I, um, I had a board meeting yesterday. We have our risk register. There are seven broad categories. Uh, two of them were red, uh, but one of them is always red and has never, ever been amber or green, and that's cyber. And I wonder if we will ever see cyber move into even the amber category. Uh, Pamela Bernie has a question here. Uh, what is Sir David's view on the balance between GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulations, and intelligence investigations relating to CDD, KYC, that's customer due diligence and know your customer requirements? Uh, this is work in progress. I mean, we, British government, we have now signed up to continue essentially with the GDPR arrangements post-Brexit. Uh, because we can't really do anything else if we're going to trade with 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 Europe, uh, but it it has a cost, and some of the costs are quite hidden costs in terms of our ability to keep ourselves safe. Uh, over time, no doubt, lessons get learned, adjustments will get made, but there is a a, a real problem. Uh, one example is the use of big data for medical research purposes. Can you access medical records suitably anonymized? And at the moment, there isn't really the confidence that you can suitably anonymize. Uh, so we don't allow uh, that kind of access without individual uh, assent. And for 
really big data sets that doesn't that's not a practical proposition so i think you're you're absolutely right permanent that there are tensions uh there i think we'll just have to have to manage them won't we um the and be very careful we don't those in 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 business just you don't fall foul of the gdpr rules because we we are going to have to live with those for the next few years um, just a, a, a one serious question and i might move to a couple of lighter ones and those but uh you you had a very nice point there i think you said it came from rand group you know the spread of truth decay uh combat combat the spread of truth decay yeah. uh so uh, in this, what's business's role in this? Is this something we should be observing? Are there active things that we can do? Um, well, a number of things. Some businesses are already putting pressure on the um, big companies, the Facebooks of this world, to say we are not prepared to have our products and services advertised on a web page if that web page is itself offensive. Um, and this has, I think this has direct, this pressure has directly led Facebook and the, the, the other big uh, companies in, uh, to stop main, the argument, they no longer maintain the argument, we just manage the pipes. Mm -hmm. What goes through our pipes is none of our business. You can rent, as it were, the ability to push stuff through the pipes that we just make sure the pipes work are clean and that they work and they have now realized that actually some of the material going through the pipe is deeply toxic to society I mean child abuse images for example but I suspect it was a number of large advertisers forming up and saying we're going to pull our, our advertising budget from you which will really hurt unless you start cleaning up. So now we have Facebook with tens of thousands of people looking at content. We have algorithms they've written which identify child abuse images, for example, and pull them. Um, on COVID disinformation, I'm told they're, they're taking down sort of hundreds of thousands of pieces of disinformation about COVID anti-vaxxer stuff. Uh, uh, things which are genuinely damaging to public health, uh, and they don't want those being passed through their pipes. It's bad for reputation. It's certainly bad for advertising. Even Twitter has taken to annotating some of President Trump's tweets about COVID <laughs> to put a health warning on them. Don't, don't ingest bleach. Right, the anti-anti-legion uh, <laughs> movement. No, it's, it's true though. I mean, the uh, I, I've seen it really interesting. I've, I've been watching governments, quite rightly, I, I think, doing a good job at realizing that anti-vax, which was a sort of a minority conspiracy theory thing, uh, could become a major impediment to helping us get over COVID. Um, I mean, the example there's GMOs, yeah. which yeah. you know, it probably set the whole industry back ten years because that meme about this is dangerous uh, promulgated uh, based really on, on no proper science. Yeah, and in fact, I've been doing a lot of personal, well, firm research on this. And one of the things we found is a huge overlap between anti-vax and 5G, as well as GMO. There's a sort of a conspiracy theory element that businesses need to understand that they're gonna, <coughs> that's a really good part of your book, in my opinion, I really enjoyed that. Uh, just one last uh, serious question, if I might. Um, you, you spoke about uh, strategic notice and the danger of being so preoccupied with whatever uh, the current danger is. Uh, we've also seen people alleging that many of the geopolitical movements going on uh, in the South China Sea or, or, or in Syria or Turkey or Armenia, Azerbaijan are due to the fact that while everybody's preoccupied, I can get up to something. Um, what are, if we're very preoccupied with COVID, what is it we should be looking at next? Uh, I, I don't mean to ask you to pick it from the risk register, but just any, any insights you might be able to give us on that would be really appreciated. I think the, the one word answer is resilience. 
So can we think uh, consciously about ways in which we can harden our processes, systems, uh, the way we manage information, uh, so that when the next thing arrives, and I'm not going to predict what it will be, uh, at least we'll be in a better position. Um, now, we did a lot of that after 9-11 in relation to violent threats. But we're going to face climate change. Uh, that's one area. There are all sorts of things like you know, coronal ejections from the sun of charged particles that will vaporize most of our technology. Uh, and uh, that would have a, a devastating effect on uh, uh, much of our day-to-day -day life. So these are, you know, if you think consciously about, you know, bad things will happen. We can't predict exactly when, but the kinds of things we probably can get a reasonable handle on, strategic notice. And then other things we can consciously do, particularly that are multi-purpose, multi-use, so we don't just protect ourselves against one particular vector of threat, but we've actually become a more resilient society. Uh, this is actually, I mean, it's London, the city of London, and it's secured by design standards for buildings and where you put the car park in, all the, the rest of it, the thickness of the glass. Uh, London is now a much safer place uh, than it was as a result of 10, 15 years of investment in securing things by design. Now you just need to expand that concept into other worlds, including the cyber world. Well, you've given us a lot to think about and uh, you mentioned quantum computing, that's another resilience aspect, uh, de definitely climate change. So there's a lot out there and we have to really do two things, don't we? We've got to be dealing with the immediate big one, say COVID at the moment, uh, and yet you can't let that uh, allow you to ignore uh, strategic notice. Um, just one uh, last question for me, but more on a, on a lighter hearted note. Um, it often helps people. You've said, you know, how spies think. Um, all right, uh, I want to have a character in mind. I want to be like so-and-so. Uh, there are a lot of fictional spies out there. Smiley, Ilya Kuryakin, Napoleon Solo, Number Six, Eve Palastri, Jack Ryan, Severus Snape is a spy. And of course, one of my favorites is the comedic Maxwell Smart. Um, do you have a, a fictional character you think we should at least ponder emulating when we're thinking how spies think in the round? Oh, think like so-and-so. I think, you know, off the top of my head, I'd pick George Smiley because that is the, the rationalist, uh, but someone who has a deep knowledge of human nature and who understand, has his own self-doubts. Uh, and that makes him paradoxically stronger because he knows himself, but he sits quietly working away uh, until the revelation comes and uh, 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 Le Carre is extraordinarily good. I put a quote from him in the book. Uh, at, at, what I wouldn't pick are the action men because true intelligence work is done in the dark and you don't even want the adversary to know you've been in and stolen the secrets or recruited the agent. Blowing things up or marching into five-star hotels to say the name's Bond, James Bond, isn't the way <laughs> intelligence communities really work. Yeah. David, we've sadly run to the end of time. Um, and unfortunately, in this day and age, I'm unable to open up the floodgates so the audience can clap. I, I have a little uh, Korean karmic clapper here from a Buddhist temple, uh, which in line with your Buddhist thinking in Bulgoksa, so I'll do that. But uh, by way of closing, I was just wondering if uh, you might just hold the book up uh, again and show them. I mean, it's worth buying, folks, uh, just for the cover. David will demonstrate. Um, I've had to read the book twice, once because I, I, I got it uh, uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a manuscript, uh, but secondly, I had to read it in preparation for today, this morning. This is the launch. 
uh, Professor David Obant uh, deconstructs and reconstructs an important mode of thinking for me, spy thought, and for all of us who deal with strategy information, misinformation and disinformation, he leaves us with that powerful C's framework, situational awareness, explanation, estimation, and strategic notice. And that's gonna help all of us face the real politic of the world. And I finished my reading pondering whether you're not thinking what I'm not thinking. And if so, then please read his book. It's really good. David, thank you so much. Thanks, Michael.